The first seven chapters, 2 Corinthians, ultimately, um, as we talked about, is Paul's defense. We've finished that up. Paul then um, starts another small section of two chapters, chapter 8 and 9. And we're going to start that this week. I'm going to handle chapter 8 today. Dustin's going to have, ha, handle chapters nine or chan, chapter 9 the next two weeks. Then we're going to take a break. We'll have some Christmas stuff and some other stuff going on until the first of the year. Then we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark. And then at some point we'll come back into 2 Corinthians because there's a final four-chapter section at the end of 2 Corinthians. But if we kind of did... Second grade, we'd be in it forever, and so that's why we kind of want to take a little bit of a break, get out. Um, but we'll come back to, to finish up the book of Second Corinthians at a later time. Um, it's a pretty difficult section. It's Paul being very pointed, challenging the Second Corinthians or the Corinthians on his trip back. But let's look at chapter eight today. As I mentioned, chapter eight and nine kind of go together as a section, and it all has to do with giving. So we're going to talk about giving today. Specifically financial giving, um, because that's what the text does. So we're going to talk about that. I'm going to handle chapter 8 today, but let's start with this. The early church actually cared for one another through generous giving. The first thing I want to do here is lay sort of a foundation for giving before we get into what Paul does, because it'll, it'll help us to understand it. Turn to Acts chapter 2, if you would. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, jump down to verse 42 with me. Is that right? Chapter 2? I'm sorry, verse 42. Talking about the uh, early, early church here. They were continually devoting, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as everyone might have need. Now jump over to chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as they had need. So what we basically have here in the, in the first century church is what um, we might refer to as taking care of one another. It was pretty common. The text here tells us that they would sell their possessions. They would give them to one another. They would share things. It says there were none that were in need. And we're obviously talking about the very first few years of the early early church, probably the first couple of decades at least. Now, it's pretty clear that many still owned possessions within the church. And so part of what we have to do is to look at this. Is Is the New Testament, at least in Acts here, describing communal living? It does say things like they had all things in common. Nobody considered their own things their own things. They would sell their property and give to the poor and and all that. The question is, are we to understand that as a form of communal living? Meaning, they didn't own anything. 
Well, we know that's not really true because, as history has shown us, um, in fact, we have names in the New Testament of individuals who owned the homes that the early Christians met in. And so, they did own property. So what do we do with that? We see that the text here says that there was, there was selling of property and giving of goods and not considering stuff your own, but sharing everything. It says that there was nobody in need. But at the same token, we know that there were individuals who owned property. We know that they were rich. The book of James describes the struggle between the rich and the poor. Um, we have... Um, Different instances in the New Testament where, you know, for instance, Paul, we have a, a Priscilla and Aquila who were tent makers, a very lucrative business at the time. You know, so we have examples of individuals who had wealth. And so, how do we sort of balance that? Turn to another passage here, Acts chapter 5. I'll read this as well. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we have an interesting passage that will give us a little bit of insight into this. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Key there is they sold a piece of property. Not all their property, but a piece of property that they owned. And they kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife full knowledge, or with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So what he did was he sold a piece of property, he got a certain amount of money for it, and then he took a portion of that, not the whole thing, but a part of that, and brought it to the apostles and gave it to them to share among the believers. His wife was aware of this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So what's the point here? Peter's basically saying, you know, Ananias, when this property was yours, it was yours. You can do whatever you want with it. There's no requirement to sell it. But you did sell it. And then, what you got for it was completely yours to do whatever you wanted to do with it. But yet, he makes it very clear here to Ananias that there was a problem. The problem was... The early church was giving. People were selling property. Ananias and Sapphira got this idea. We can gain some clout here. If we take and sell one of our pieces of property, we'll tell them we got $50 for it. When we really got 100 we're going to keep back part of it for ourselves, but this is going to make us look good. So we'll make them think we got 50 bucks for it, or 100 bucks for it, or whatever it is. And we'll, we'll only give you a portion of it, but they won't know. It'll make us look good. That was the lie. But the key to the text here is that he tells Ananias and Sapphira, or um, Sapphira here, I'm sorry, Ananias here, that it was his to do with what he wanted. There was no requirement for him to sell, the, sell his property. And even if he did sell the property, he could have said, hey, guys, guess what? I didn't need this extra track of land that I have here, so I sold it. I got $100 for it. I'm going to give 50 of that to the church. He could have done that, Peter says. That would have been a good thing to do. But he lied about it. In other words, he gave in a way that was to bring attention to himself. There was a story I heard years ago. This uh, pastor friend of mine was telling a story about um, a church that he used to pastor. And they would pass the, the typical plate around, you know. And, um, which is pretty, pretty typical in churches. And so as the plate would come by, you'd put your money in it and stuff. And he said there was always this one woman in the church when they would do that. I don't know if it was every Sunday or on a regular basis, but 
the the plate would pass her by, you know, and after they would finish passing the plate and the elders would collect the plate and and take them up to the church, they would do this presentation where they would put it down in front of the altar. Some churches do that and it's like an offering to God. And And then all of a sudden she would just wave her money up in the air like, oh, you forgot. And the elders would have to then go over to her with the plate and give her the plate. And it, w- it was a regular routine. It would pass her right by. She could put the money in the plate, but she would wait until it was all done. And I guess she was a fairly wealthy woman in the church. But wave it so everybody would know she's giving. You know, And that's kind of the picture that we have here. Well, I won't read the rest of the story there, but you know what happens. The Lord takes his life. Kills Ananias for lying. Then his wife, they ask his wife about it. She lies about it as well. And the Lord takes her life. So why do I bring these, this passage up? I want to try to lay some groundwork here. The New Testament nowhere commands a redistribution of wealth or communal living. It doesn't command that we all sort of sell everything we have and put it into one big pool and you all come live at the pamperins. It doesn't command that. However, it does encourage that we take care of one another. And that's what the early church was doing. They would give. They would sell stuff they didn't need. They would sacrificially do things to care for those who had needs within the church. And that's the example we have. So the Bible commands us to give, but it doesn't necessarily tell us to give everything we have or to live communally or that it's wrong for some to have more money or more property than others. It nowhere in any shape, form, or fashion... um, preaches or teaches this idea of redistribution of our wealth. But it does encourage those who have excess to help and to give to those who don't have enough. There's a command there's commands for the those who have plenty to help those who do not. And so we're going to kind of look at that a little bit. God has always expected his people to care for one another through their generosity. The Old Testament law, in fact, if we read in Deuteronomy chapter 15, commanded that the Old Testament saints care for those who were needy. So Israelites were commanded that when they saw a need that they could meet, they were expected to meet it. In fact, I don't know if you remember the story of how um, if you owned property and you would farm your land, you weren't allowed to farm the, or to harvest the corners of your property. You would leave them there. You know why that was? Bible tells us, so that the needy in the community could go and harvest that for themselves. It was a sin for an Israelite who owned a piece of property, who farmed it, to farm all of it and keep everything for himself. So the Old Testament, in the law, commanded that we care for those who can't care for themselves or who have need. We have the examples here in the New Testament with the book of Acts. Anybody remember James's statements? He says, genuine religion is caring for widows and orphans. There's an expectation that we care for those who can't care for themselves. James also goes on to warn against lip service. He says, you yeah, faith is kind of like this. When you see somebody who's in need and you say, be warm, be filled, be about your way. He says, that's, that's not true religion. True religion would help. So that's the standard if you want to look at that. And so it's from there that we find Paul's teaching today. And the reason I thought that was important to cover is because we have all kinds of opinion in and outside the church. You know, anytime Christians do things with their money, the outside world wants to slam us. You know, when Ken Ham built his big ark, 
the secular world came out, that money should be given to the poor. Look at the money those Christians are wasting. But yet those same people are building Disney and building the big amusement parks. And See, it's kind of hypocritical there. So there's all this stuff floating around about what real giving or what Christian living really looks like. There are two instances that we see in the New Testament here, two very specific occasions where Paul actually collected money for the saints. One of them is the passage we're going to talk about today. Turn to Acts chapter 11, if you will. Acts chapter 11. Jump down to verse 27. Luke writes this. Now, now, at this time, this is verse 27, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea, which is where the bulk of that famine actually had hit. And they did this, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So we have a situation there where the Apostle Paul had been commissioned by the early church to take an offering collected from the disciples who it says here had the resources. They gave it to Paul and Paul took it to the elders that were in Judea for the distribution to the saints there to help them. So that was the first instance where Paul collected money, if you will, for the saints. The second instance is what we actually find in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians today. So why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to look at this this passage today. The first thing we're going to see is the generosity of the Macedonians. And Paul's going to use that as an example. And there's going to be five principles we're going to draw out of that. How did the Macedonians give? What should our giving look like? And we're going to look at five principles from that. He's then going to go on and encourage the Corinthians to now restart their offering. Because they had started to collect money to send, but decided to stop. And from there, we're going to see three reasons why it was important for them to give. So, let's say we'll have eight points today, if you will. We're going to have five um, principles of giving that we could follow, and then three reasons why it was important that they give. So let's go ahead and break this down. The first five verses of chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging of favor, or of, for the favor of participation and support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we have this example of the Macedonians that Paul wants to share with us. The Macedonians, the first principle I'm going to see here is that they gave as an expression of God's grace. Notice what the text says here. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, you might have a slightly different translation of that. There's some question about exactly what Paul meant by the grace of God given in the churches. The best way for us to understand that is he's saying that the Macedonians' giving was an expression of God's grace among them. Some translations like the ES or like the uh, NET say that 
their giving was an expression of God's grace to them, which is a little awkward and weird. Really, what the, what the text is indicating is that the Macedonians gave as an expression of God's grace. They had received God's grace. They are now giving as an expression of that grace to others. And so the first principle for us is this, that when we give, it is an expression of God's grace. Isn't that true? Kimberly and I talked about this yesterday morning in our study of Ephesians. Grace is God's free gift to us, but it always costs somebody something. Do you ever notice that? You know, Christmas time. Um, Mom just sent us a check. Um, when we are not in Green Bay, she sends us money so we can buy the gifts and stuff here for the kids and our family. When we're up there, she provides gifts. She does all the shopping. Those are free to us. I got this check in the mail yesterday, and it was free for us. But somebody else, it cost them, didn't did it not? That's the way grace is. And so the Macedonians had received God's grace, his forgiveness, his goodness, which cost God something, his son, right? Now they give as an expression of grace back to the saints in Jerusalem, but it costs them something. That's the way grace is. I almost hate the phrase that grace is free. No, grace is not free. Grace costs somebody something. It's free to us, but it always costs somebody something. And so the first principle here is that the Macedonians gave as an expression of God's grace, and so when we give, it ought to be for the same purpose and reason. We shouldn't do it like Ananias and Sapphira. We shouldn't do it like the lovely older lady in church waving the dollar bill above her head. We, we give it because we are trying to extend God's grace that has been given to us to others. We're a conduit in that respect, are we not? Let's go on to the second principle. Look at verse 2. It says that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That is a mouthful. But it basically can be summarized as this. Their generosity came at a time when they were struggling themselves. That's remarkable to me. According to the book of Acts, also found in the book of uh, Philippians and Thessalonians, the Macedonians faced significant persecution themselves. They were extremely persecuted. That made it difficult to make a living. They were extremely poor. And again, that's recorded in numerous places in the scriptures. Thessalonians, Philippians, Acts chapter 16 and 17. Paul reflects that here when he says that they were in a great ordeal of affliction. I was reading yesterday as I've been preparing to the book of Mark, about what the early church faced under Nero. It is persecution, and I, this probably wasn't quite Nero yet, but the persecution was pretty severe. I think about, you know, my heart lately has been thinking about believers in China, where China year, a number of years ago, about a decade ago, I think it was a decade, a decade or two ago, changed their constitution to allow for religious freedom. Well, they're now pulling back all those things where Christians now are being rounded up. Muslims, there's over a million Muslims that have been rounded up in China and put in re-education camps. They're now starting to do the same thing to Christians. Um, they're losing property. They're losing rights. Um, China has, has ultimately now banned the sale of the English Bible. In fact, the Chinese government is now financing a version of their own Old and New Testament scriptures that will be approved for people in China to read. So I've been thinking a lot lately about what our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, face all over the world. They face severe persecution. And as Paul says here, a great ordeal of affliction. 
Paul says here they were experiencing deep poverty themselves. There's no other way to say it. They were dirt poor. But he says in spite of that affliction and that poverty, he says that they had an abundance of joy and this joy overflowed and he, and he does this neat little tongue twister here, this play on words, that this abundance of joy overflowed in the wealth, he just said they were poor, and the wealth of their liberality. They may have been poor financially, but they were wealthy in how they gave. They were wealthy in their desire to be liberal with their giving. And so the second principle we see here is that these Macedonians didn't simply give because they had enough to give. They gave out of their struggling. Which means as they looked at the saints in Jerusalem facing persecution, facing famine... Instead of looking at themselves and saying, yeah, but we got it just as bad. They took the eyes off themselves and they looked down the road at the saints in Jerusalem and went, wow, they're suffering. And they had joy that overflowed in their liberality. Makes me wonder sometimes, even my own giving, you know, it's easy to give when you have enough, but do we give sacrificially? That's a little more difficult for us, isn't it? And yet, they didn't seem to be all that concerned. Let's look at the third principle. They not only gave according to their ability, but they went beyond their ability. Look at verse 3. He says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability. According to their ability implies that each one gave what they could. They looked at their finances and said, You know what? Yeah, I can spare an extra buck. I can give. They did it according to their ability. That's actually the biblical standard, believe it or not. God, does, God never commands that we give more than we have. He praises when we give more than we have, or when we have to make sacrifice. But it's never commanded that we give more than we have. The biblical standard is that, is that as God blesses you, use that then to bless others. Which makes common sense. If God commanded us to give more than we have... We wouldn't, then, then he's not providing enough for us, is he? Because we couldn't survive. Okay, so the biblical standard is actually giving according to our abilities. And so Paul praises them for that here. They gave according to their ability. But in addition to that, he says, they even went beyond their ability. Now he's talking specifically in this instance about taking care of the Jerusalem saints. I've always had a principle of giving where you see need. In other words, you don't always see need. You know, We give to the church on a regular basis, whether there's need or not. But then there are other times where you see need and you go, you know what, I need to step up. I need to go above and beyond here because I see need. That's what they did. They looked beyond themselves. They looked down the road. They didn't just look at what they had. They went, you know what, we can do better. Maybe they made certain sacrifices. Maybe they gave up direct TV for the month. I don't know. But what they did was they went above and beyond their ability. What that means is that they probably gave in a way that some people went, are you nuts? You really don't have that to give. Or you really, maybe that, that's too much. That's not reasonable. That's not sound. If you ever find yourself in a position where you really struggled with something and you had to step back and say, well, you know what? Wow, I'm worried about this. And I know ultimately in the end, God will take care of me. Do you ever do that with your giving where you start like, man, I can't afford this. And you stop and you go... You know what, God's always met my needs in the past. You know, sort of like when I went through seminary, I did not make enough money to live. I had to rely on others 
to take care of my tuition and buy some of the supplies I needed. And I worked, I worked full time, but I was making five bucks an hour. Even as a single guy, that was pretty rough to, to make ends meet on that. And initially I thought, you know, I wonder if God really requires me to still give. Because I have to rely on the giving of others. And I came to the conclusion that, no, I still need to give. And you know what? I didn't starve. I made it through seminary. God took care of everything. So it's easy sometimes to think, I just don't have it. And part of it is because maybe we're afraid that God won't provide what we need. Now, I'm not suggesting what the Word Faith Movement does, which is get on late night television and go, you know what, if I give a thousand, God will give me two. You know, that's just, that's foolishness. It's a great way to put yourself in debt and go, God, what'd you do to me? And God says, I'm not the idiot that told you to give what you didn't have. So the third principle we have here is that they gave according to their ability and even beyond their ability. And again, I think the, is that a command that we do the same thing? No. It's not commanded here by Paul. He's giving us an example. It's one to be praised. But it's also isn't indicating that we have to give beyond our ability all the time in all our giving. Remember, they were looking at a very particular situation. Severe persecution and famine that the Israelites, or that the Jews were facing in Jerusalem at the time. And so they stepped up and gave beyond their ability at that time. Third, or the fourth principle, look at verses, uh, the second half of verse 3, it says, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. There's a bunch of words in there that is loaded, but the fourth principle here is that they gave because they were eager to give. How much of us give because we feel pressure to give? Or because we feel some legalistic obligation? You know the Old Testament, you were obligated to give. God commanded a tenth. Then he commanded you another time to give a tenth. And then he commanded a third time to give a tenth. A tenth. The average Israeli was expected to give approximately 28% of their wealth to the temple every single year. It was commanded. It was expected. It's interesting that the New Testament doesn't command a tithe. Why do you suppose that is? It's not God's model of giving. The tithe in the Old Testament was to care for God's saints, the temple, all that. The church is very different. Okay? It's one reason I have a difficult time whenever I hear preachers or pastors or teachers teach that God commands that you give a tenth. It's not commanded in the New Testament. There's a reason. Giving in the New Testament is supposed to be motivated this way. Not out of law. Not out of obligation. There's encouragement in the New Testament. Does God expect us to give? Yes. Does he command it? Yes. But this way, not by simply carving off a certain percentage that you have to write to renew every month. It's not the way giving works in the New Testament. It's the way it's done here. You know, it's interesting because we don't have a whole lot of needs here. Some of your giving goes to pay our rent here. Some of your giving goes to, um, I used to work a side consulting job to make extra income. You know, Amy doesn't work, so it's the way that we help take care of the family. Um, and so it would help for me to have the outside consulting. Well, I no longer do as much of that. And part of that is because of the generosity of this church here. Because part of what you give is then given to me, much like Paul says in the New Testament, um, to um, care for those who diligently teach the Word. That's a blessing that I receive from you guys. It's not something I expect, but it's a blessing. So part of your giving goes to care for the needs of my family. 
That's often the way we work in the churches. We help to care for the needs of some churches, salary their pastor full-time. I prefer to be a tent maker, much like Paul. Paul operated the same way. He worked with his hands, but he accepted the giving of the church. Okay, And so, when we think about all of that, why do we give? We give because we see need, but also here, the fourth principle is that they gave willingly because they desired to do it. It wasn't out of obligation as much as it was a desire. Notice it says here that they gave of their own accord. That means Paul didn't have to twist their arms to give or force them. Now, with the Corinthians, he's going to tighten the thumbscrews a little bit, and he's going to encourage them to do something, to give, but he's truly trying to encourage them to give of their own accord, to desire to give. In fact, notice that Paul says that they actually begged him to give. Isn't it rather interesting? I suspect that as Paul looked at the Macedonians, maybe some of them said, Hey, Paul, we hear about these saints in Jerusalem. We hear that they're not doing so good, so we'd like to give something. I would imagine that Paul probably looked at them and said, Yeah, but you guys are struggling too. You're poor. You're being beaten down. You just don't have it to give. And their response was, no, please, let us give. Because the language Paul uses here is just that. They begged him. And notice it says that they begged him with much urging. So he doubles it up. They didn't just beg. They pleaded and begged that they could give. They wanted in. On this, They wanted to help, and even though they were struggling themselves, even though they were in poverty themselves, even though they might not have had everything they thought they needed, they went, you know what, God will take care of it, we're going to give. And they begged Paul to be able to participate in that. And the reason is, we're told, that it's because they saw it as participating in ministry. Notice it says that they begged him for the favor of, That's the word grace of participation. That's the word fellowship of support, which is ministry. It's a mouthful, but basically it means this. That they looked at this and they said, we want to join in God's grace. We want to fellowship in this ministry. We want to become members. We want to become participants in helping to take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. So their giving was motivated because they desperately desired to become part of taking care of others. Now think about what we did here with the Malins, you know, with, with helping them with some of the adoption expenses and stuff. Um, that's what church is about. It's reaching out, it's helping one another, and we ought to be eager to do it. We ought to be, in some respects, almost begging to be a part of helping when we see people struggling. And that applies not just to financial giving, other areas, praying, caring for, providing meals, that kind of stuff. You know, when people, we've looked at the, you know, with some of our friends that have had cancer and providing meals and stuff, that's all part of giving. It's, there's a financial cost to some of that stuff, and that's all important. Um, but giving is that way, too, and that's what's supposed to motivate our giving. One of the things that we've talked about here as elders um, and deacons is we, we kind of, as you guys know, we kind of meet all five of us, three elders and two deacons. We, we, we look at the input of all of everyone with that. But one of the things that we've expressed on a regular basis is that um, we want to make sure that the giving you guys give us is managed properly and used properly. And so we use that to pay rent. And like I said, I receive a portion of that. Um, 
But the other thing we talk about is we want to make sure that we have the resources that if anybody here ever really does need that, that we're able to first meet the needs of Christ's body. The problem I have with, with some churches is that they focus so much on using those resources for things that that um, are, I'm going to say, sort of external, but when somebody inside the church desperately needs it, well, there's other forms of assistance. You know, they can go to the government. They can get food stamps. They can do all kinds of other things. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong or bad. It's just that, wait a, wait a minute, the, the example in the scriptures is Christ's family first and foremost takes care of Christ's family. And so one of the reasons why we have the savings that we do as a church, we have, we make sure that every year we, we, we put money into savings, is because we, we never know what, what we may need to do. And so one of the things we're committed to is that when needed, we want to be able to help to take care of the body when there's genuine need. Now, the Bible also says, let he who does not work not eat which means you don't let somebody come in and just sit on their hands all day and the church takes care of them. Genuine need needs to be met by the body. And these Macedonians begged to be a part of that. Tells us where their heart was. Now the last principle we'll see here is verse 5. Notice he says this, And this, not as we had expected... But they gave, or first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So what's the principle I draw to that? The last principle we find here is that the Macedonians gave as part of their commitment to the Lord. But also as their commitment to Paul, which I think is important here. In other words, they had received grace from God. They then realized, you know what, because God has given us grace and has gifted to us because we are committed to what he's done, we will now allow him to use us to do the same thing to others. They saw giving as a requirement, a necessity, because of their commitment to Christ. Again, it kind of comes back to why we give. When we give, we have to understand that it is given because of our commitment to Christ. And there's all kinds of other reasons that get us in trouble, like Ananias and Sapphira and others. Um, there are times where um, I write my check every month, if I can say it that way, where um, it'd be easy for me to say, well, you know what, Renew really doesn't need the money this month, or um, I don't really see anything else out there that really needs my attention or needs my help, so really there's no need to give. And it's in those months that I kind of go, you know what, no, um, this is just good for me. Because I'm committed to the Lord, and the Lord will use it some way, somehow, down the line. Because of my commitment to Him. He gave to me, I can't give much back to Him. You know, He doesn't need anything. I can give Him my devotion, my love, affection, that kind of stuff, but I can also give financially, so that those resources are available for God to use any way that God chooses to. You know, we did the same thing with the Dietrichs. I love getting their emails. I forward them on to you guys and see how God has, has um, in fact, in the, we gave a one time to help take care of those relocation expenses. Uh, I think, well, there's another phrase he used for it, but it's the idea of sort of, they have their monthly giving and that they need, but then they also have these one-time expenses. And so in this last email that, that Jeremiah sent, he mentioned how those resources were important for them just now down in, down where they're at. So, um, God will use that stuff. And so there's sometimes where I just, I give because I'm like, no, this is just a commitment. God gave to me, I'm going to give back this way. 
So those are the five principles that I think we can learn from the Macedonians. And Paul ultimately is using that example as a way of trying to encourage the Corinthians now to be like the Macedonians. Because something happened. The Corinthians appear to have been possibly the first church or churches to suggest Paul collecting up money for this ancient Jerusalem on a prior visit or something, because Paul mentions in the text here that they were kind of the first. But something happened. They decided to stop. So they started collecting money for the saints, but then they all of a sudden decided they weren't going to do it anymore. I suspect, and I can't prove this, but I suspect maybe it's because, remember, some of the false teachers were accusing Paul of using that money for himself. They had said, yeah, sure, Paul says he doesn't need your giving, he's a tent maker, but you know that collection? Remember Silas was here collecting money, Timothy was collecting money? Yeah, that really is ultimately going back to Paul, he's using it for himself. So I suspect the Corinthians kind of went, oh, hmm, yeah, that's not right. Maybe we shouldn't give, it's not really going to the Corinthians. And I've got reason why I suspect that, it's because of what's in the text here, but let's go ahead and read it. But I think, I think that's what happened. Maybe it didn't, it's my opinion, take it for what it's worth. But the reality of it is they had stopped collecting money for the saints, and now Paul has to encourage them to pick that back up again. So let's look at verses 6 through 15. So we urged Titus that he had previously made a beginning so that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. In other words, Titus had started to collect the money on a previous visit, but they stopped. Now he encouraged Titus, go back and help him collect. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in the earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this in a, as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago. Remember I said they were probably the first to recommend this? You were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also your desire to do it. But now, finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire to do it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. And this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, so that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Let's go ahead and break this down. I'm going to pull out three reasons here why it was important for the Corinthians to give. The first one is that... It's important for them to give because giving is a Christian virtue. Did you catch that in this text? He says this in verse 7, But just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, that's what speaking is, in knowledge, in an earnestness, in love, notice those are all Christian virtues, aren't they? He says, so just as you abound in all these other Christian virtues, there's another one that you need to abound in as well, another Christian virtue, and that's this gracious work. It's giving. Giving is actually a Christian virtue. What are Christian virtues? It's what defines us. You know, a virtue is love. It's faith. 
It's how you speak. It's your knowledge, your study of God's word. It's earnestness. It's love. It's kindness. It's mercy. It's compassion. Those are all Christian virtues. Those are the things that define us. Giving is also a Christian virtue. And Paul says, just as we abound in all those other Christian virtues, we have to make sure that we're abounding in giving. We don't get to pick what Christian virtues we want or don't want, like or don't like, abound in or don't abound in. Giving says an awful lot about where our hearts are. In fact, it's maybe a better barometer than other things. You know, love costs us nothing. Being kind really costs us nothing, except maybe emotional stuff. Giving hits us in the pocketbook. Does it not? So often that is an area where I think Christians really struggle. Um, Anytime you look at research into um, giving in the local church, um, people get all freaked out because, oh, I think it averages 2 or 3%. I don't have a problem with that. You know? Because, again, I don't hold to the concept of a tithe in the New Testament. So I don't think it's a good way to measure a church. The way you measure a church is, are they giving, and are they taking care of people, and is it all working out, right? Um, Christians are some of the most gracious people in the world. Most of your charities have been started by Christian organizations. Hospitals, schools, all started by Christians. Okay, We've been gracious and kind. It's a Christian virtue. And so Paul says, we need to continue that. We need to be known for that. Second reason he gives us in verse 8 It was important for them to give because Paul was testing their sincerity. Is that an interesting one? He said he was testing their sincerity of love towards others. He says this in verse 8, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love. So just as the Macedonians gave of their own accord, Paul's commanding the Corinthians to give here. But notice he, I shouldn't say commanding, he's not commanding, he's urging. There's a slight difference. You notice he says here, I'm doing this not by way of command. Verse 10, I give my opinion. So he's not demanding that they give, he's really just trying to encourage them to live out the right virtue, giving here. But he was testing it. The word proving here, their love, is kind of this idea of making it um, firm, making it stand. Um, Verse 9 says that he wanted them to reflect the grace that Christ had reflected to them. Look at this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So what does Paul mean by he was trying to prove their sincerity or their love for others? He's basically saying, look, are you reflecting the attitude and the giving that you see in Christ? Christ loved you, are you willing to love others by giving? That's a test of faith. You know, as they say, it's sort of a proof of what you believe based on your actions. You know, and so in many respects, as Paul is looking at these Corinthians, they had made some commitments. They had offered to help the Jerusalem saints. But then they stopped doing it. Paul said, what happened to that earnestness? What happened to that desire to help? And he's trying to stoke that up in them, and he's saying... I'm going to challenge you as a test. Do you really want to reflect the grace that God has given to you? Do you really want to prove that your love for the saints in Jerusalem is sincere? If so, then pick up where you left off. Do what you promised you would do. Again, he wasn't commanding them to do it. But he is doing a pretty stiff challenge, is he not? 
the third the third reason why Paul thought it was important for them to give has to do with the concept of equality. And this is a challenge, I think, to us. Paul says in verse 12, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. He goes on and he says, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. That's the word for equity. Okay, There's a slight difference. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance may also be a supply for your need. What is he basically saying here? He's not saying, again, redistribute the wealth. Everybody needs to be equal here. He's saying, hey, for the sake of equity, okay, here's how it's supposed to work. There are going to be times where you Corinthians are really going to have more than you need and there's going to be Christians in Jerusalem who don't have enough. Help them. Take care of them. Because a time is going to come when you might not have everything you need and they might have an abundance. That's just good practical sense, is it not? They've got need, care for them. When you have need, care for them. Jesus actually alludes to to, um, using friendships in this way. Make a lot of friends because you may need those friends. Not a bad way to think. Um... I've had instances in my own life where um, I've seen other individuals that have struggled and so I've had a little bit more than I needed and been able to give to them. I've also seen times where that's been returned back to me at times where I've needed some and people have done the same thing to me. That's what Paul refers to as equality. It's not that everybody has exactly the same or nobody ever has any need or everybody has the same income or same size house or anything else. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's simply saying that when you have need, the equitable thing to do is to help those who might need. So when you have abundance, give to help those when they're in need. And likewise, if you ever need it, there will be those in God's church that will help you out. Let me give you one one example, and I'll wrap it up with this. I think I might have shared this story before, probably, but bear with me. I don't do a lot of illustrations, so sometimes I repeat them. Um, when I was in seminary, I told you I had to um, rely on others to take care of me every semester. Um, I paid my food bill and my rent by working, but that's all I had. I didn't have enough for tuition or books or um, sometimes even traveling back home. So what I would do is every single, at the end of every single semester, I would write a letter back to my church family. I had about 40 or 50 people that um, I would write to. And I would simply say, I'm registering for, tu- for classes next semester. Here's my tuition bill for next semester. This is what I need. But I would always tell them, I said, you know what? Um, whatever God provides is what I'll do, which means if he only provides enough to go to a class or two, that's all I'll take. So I'll register, but if I don't have the money on the first day of classes to pay for it, I'll cancel those classes and only take what I can afford. And I would send that letter back home without knowing whether or not I was going to be in school the next semester. Every single semester, all eight of the semesters, God provided exactly what I needed for tuition. I never had any more. I never had any less. Even when I, the last year I was able to drop down to part-time just to finish, I only got exactly what I needed. So it's not like God was saying, I'm going to provide $5,000 a semester, and oh, guess what? Those last two semesters, you don't need it all, so you get to go. Well, it didn't work that way. God just gave me exactly what I needed. Um, except for one semester, I got an extra 100 bucks. I happened to be in, in Wausau, Wisconsin for Christmas. This um, individual from the church, who happened to be the, the, um, the uh, 
caretaker of the church. They were so poor, his wife had to make all the clothes for all the kids. They couldn't afford to go to a Walmart and buy them. I struggled with that because I've been challenged to church on a number of occasions. Like, you pay your pastoral staff very well. This guy, we wouldn't have our church if this guy didn't care for it. And he can go anywhere else and probably make double what he's making. But for some reason, the elders just didn't see it that way. And I struggled with that. Well, one day he came up to me, gave me a $100 bill. And my heart just sank. I'm like, there's no way this guy can afford this. You know, and so I told him, I said, I can't, I can't do it. He goes, Mike, no, this, we've been putting this aside. Putting it ever since you, we're putting it aside. So I thought about it. I thought, you know what, i got, I got to accept it because it's a gift. But I knew I didn't need it. And I told him, I got everything I need. Give this to somebody. He goes, no, this is for you. Use it for whatever you want. So I took it. And I'm thinking, I, I don't need this. I felt horrible. That same morning, a young woman I knew that had been go- planning a missions trip came up to me didn't know what I got this, and shared a story with me on how all of the money that her and her fellow students had raised to go on their missions trip was stolen by the guy that planned the trip. It's all gone. So they all now had to re-raise their money. Everybody in her group was able to re-raise their money, except for her. And she was a hundred bucks short. So I looked at her and I kind of went, oh, that's interesting. Took a hundred bucks out of my pocket. Gave it to her and said, somebody gave me a hundred bucks I don't need. Gave it to her. That's the way God works. It's the way that he works. That's equality. That's the equity that Paul is talking about. Paul tells him here, it's not so that you can be poor, Corinthians. I'm not asking you to give till it hurts so that you can suffer and now the Jerusalem saints can live large. That's not at all, Paul says, no. It's just about equity. So, I'm going to go ahead and end with that.